Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me this week is our producer, Stephen Trader. Hey, Stephen, how's it going? Hello, Natalie. It's going well. Um, We just want to be right up front with our listeners. We are recording on Friday morning. We usually record on Thursday, but it was a very busy day with opinions, and we wanted to take a moment and take a beat and kind of digest everything. There was a couple of really big opinions that came down today that that we're going to get into here. That's right. We got four opinions yesterday, um, and two of them were in like kind of blockbuster cases that we were watching. Um, Like you said, lots to get into. So let's dive right in. Yeah, let's get into it, Natalie. The first one was one of the blockbuster voting rights cases of the Supreme Court term. On Thursday, a five-justice majority concluded that an Alabama congressional map drawn following the 2020 census had diluted black voter representation in violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Alabama's electoral map packed a large number of black voters into a single district, which the state argued was okay because it was drawn using race-neutral methods, but the majority rejected that argument. There is a lot to unpack here. It was a 112-page opinion, so... We actually sought the help of an expert guest, Jenner and Block partner Sam Hirsch. Sam focuses on voting rights and redistricting litigation. An amicus brief that he and his team wrote in this case was cited numerous times in Thursday's opinion. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today to help break this one down. Oh, thank you for having me. So we just wanted to kind of start by setting up the stakes of this one. Give us a little bit of a background about how we got to this case. I know it started at the lower court and the Supreme Court uh, affirmed that ruling. So talk about how we got here and what was really at stake in this one. Well, Alabama, since the 1990s, has had only one district where Black voters can successfully nominate and elect their preferred candidate to Congress. And that's a bit unusual because they have seven districts total and the state's 25-30% African-American. So uh, uh, Black voters brought a case under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. It was ultimately decided by a three-judge district court in their favor, but the U.S. Supreme Court stepped in and stayed that ruling, so they didn't get any relief for the 2022 elections. But the case went on and was argued and decided yesterday on the merits uh, uh, and was affirmed. Uh, So the big victory for the civil rights plaintiffs in this case and a big victory for minority representation generally. So what exactly did the Supreme Court decide on Thursday? As you mentioned, this was a major win for the Voting Rights Act, but in some ways it was a win because it left things status quo, correct? Uh, No, that's right. And that's an interesting feature. Uh, I, I think that most observers were so certain that the Voting Rights Act would get weakened by the Supreme Court that when precedent was upheld, and uh, in some sense, the law really stays the same, people are uh, popping the champagne bottles, understandably. This is a court that's been really tough on civil rights plaintiffs across many different areas, including voting. And there was really nothing in the oral argument that suggested that we were going to see the victory that we saw yesterday. As you read through the opinion yesterday, and it was a 5-4 majority written by Chief Justice Roberts, was there anything that like really jumped out at you about his writing or, or their reasoning in this one? No, it, it, it was written, it wouldn't have shocked me if the same opinion had come from the pen of, of Justice Kagan or Justice Jackson or Justice Sotomayor. It, it was a solid uh, endorsement of the principles behind the Voting Rights Act. And coming from uh, the Chief Justice, who had joined a case just a couple of years ago called Brnovich, that really weakened 
the application of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, the very same section, to a different set of fact patterns, and the very author of the Shelby County opinion that decimated Section 5 and Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act, which was the part of the act that required some mostly Southern jurisdictions to get advance approval from Washington, D.C. before changing their voting rules. So in some ways, the most uh, amazing thing about the opinion wasn't the language, uh, it was who signed it. And seeing Chief Justice Roberts as the author and seeing Justice Kavanaugh joining it to form a majority was was really eye-opening and and, uh, uh, a wonderful surprise. Sam, no, you and your team wrote an amicus brief that got a couple of citations in the majority decision. Can you tell us a little bit about the brief you wrote and your thoughts on what the justices decided to pull from it? Yeah, absolutely. So we wrote a brief on behalf of three computational redistrictors. These are redistricting experts who are not social scientists. They're actually mathematicians and computer scientists who've studied very deeply and participated in redistricting litigation um, and, 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 and really brought to the fore what can computers do and what can they not do in these cases. And the amicus brief, rather unusually, was cited by two different oralists at oral argument. So we knew at that point that it was likely to get the attention of the justices. But what was surprising was it featured over and over in Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion. And then in the dissent by Justice Alito, he attacked uh, Chief Justice Roberts for relying too much on the amicus brief. Now, the, the gist of the brief was this. Alabama was saying, you can only win a Voting Rights Act case if you show that a random, completely non-racial approach to redistricting, like drawing a gazillion maps without any knowledge of racial composition of the districts, would not have resulted in a map resembling the one you're challenging. So you'd have to say, we're challenging a map that is way worse than the average or median random district from a pile of a million or billion of them. And Chief Justice Roberts has flatly rejected that, citing our brief and that rejection of the so-called race-neutral benchmark for these Voting Rights Act cases was the central holding of the case because that was the central argument that the state of Alabama raised against our side. Yeah, and I know that that, that would have really turned the Voting Rights Act on its head and essentially dismantled it. Um, I want to talk a little bit, because you mentioned it was also cited in the dissent, and I know that this opinion, it's 112 pages, there was a lot of little parts of it. Uh, Justice Thomas wrote a dissent, Justice Alito wrote a separate dissent. Was there any takeaway from the other side, or or, you know, big takeaways from from what they had argued? No, not really. Um, You know, Justice Thomas, since 1994, has made this argument that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act doesn't even apply to, to districting or, or redistricting. And he ran that argument back again. It's failed every time it failed again. That wasn't shocking. Um, it wasn't really shocking that the court, although Alabama asked them to do this uh, in the alternative, that the court did not invalidate or declare unconstitutional any aspect of the Voting Rights Act. But a lot of the arguments you see in the dissents were retreads of positions taken by conservative advocates over the years. So n- nothing shocking there. But Stephen, to, to turn to the question you, the, the point you raised about um, how how destructive Alabama's proposal for a so-called race-neutral benchmark could have been, here, here's the key fact: this was a case about whether to change Alabama's congressional plan from having one district to having two districts where Black voters could succeed. 
But if you actually were forced to think about a random, completely non-racial map, that would likely have zero such districts. So what was at stake here was not just the ability to get fair representation and move from one out of seven districts to two out of seven. It was whether there would be any black controlled districts in the entire state of Alabama. I mean, can you imagine the situation where there's not a single black member of Congress from the state of Alabama or the state of Louisiana or the state of Mississippi, state of South Carolina? That would be a disaster. And that's what the state of Alabama wanted. That's what four justices were willing to support yesterday and what the chief and Justice Kavanaugh and the three other justices stood up against. Now, I know Justice Kavanaugh signed on to most of the opinion. Uh, can you t- talk about the, the the one part that that he decided to not sign on to? Yeah, he, he joined the overwhelming uh, uh, parts of the opinion. There was one small section that he didn't, and he wrote separately, but it wasn't the concurrence and the judgment only. It was a full concurrence. The, his, his main issue that he was reserving is twofold. One, is there some amount of race consciousness in a civil rights plaintiff's proposed map that's over the line. And basically the chief said no, uh, as long as it's a reasonably compact district that respects counties and municipalities and other traditional redistricting principles like that. He left that a little more open. The other thing he said is maybe this isn't permanently okay. Maybe there's a time limit on, on, on these kinds of remedial statutes. The state of Alabama didn't make that exact argument here, so he said he wouldn't pass on it, but he kind of left that door open. Um, down the road, will we still need this? Will we still view it as valid and constitutional? So I just wanted to kind of wrap it up here with talking a little bit about the implications of this. The Voting Rights Act survives for now. I know that there's other litigation playing out in other states related to you know congressional maps and how they're, how they're drawn. So what is the big takeaway from this ruling and, and what that means moving forward? Well, most importantly, it means we're not going to see a wholesale assault on existing minority districts that we would have seen if the case was five to four the other way. That's number one. Number two, in Alabama, the lower court will get this case back and almost certainly will prevail. And the new lines for the upcoming congressional districts in Alabama will have two out of seven rather than one out of seven districts where Black voters can successfully elect their preferred candidates. But much more important than just that, The same exact issue is teed up in a Louisiana case currently pending in the U.S. Supreme Court, which they will likely send back to the lower court. And there, we're going to go from one out of six districts to two out of six, almost certainly. There's the chance to pick up minority representation in Georgia, and perhaps in quite a few other states as well. So I think that uh, although minority groups will, will remain underrepresented in Congress, uh, they'll have the ability to close that gap significantly thanks to this opinion. Well, Sam, thank you so much again for taking the time to explain this one. It was a huge blockbuster opinion. We've all been watching closely and just thank you for talking us through it and what this means moving forward. Uh, delighted to speak with both of you. Thank you. That was a great conversation with Sam. Um, definitely, uh, like I said, a big blockbuster case that we've been watching. Uh, it was not the only other blockbuster though <laughs> on Thursday. We got a couple yesterday, yes. That's right. Uh, another one involved trademark law. Um, it was a big win for Jack Daniels in a much watched and 
frankly much joked about case over a poop-themed dog toy infringing on Jack Daniels' trademark rights. In a unanimous decision delivered by Justice Kagan, the court vacated a Ninth Circuit decision that had said the toy was protected speech because it was parody. So big win for Jack Daniels. Yeah, certainly. Um, We definitely had some fun talking about this one at Oral Arguments back in March. We tried to keep the potty humor to a minimum, but, you know, we maybe got carried away. Um, But (laughs) Natalie, remind us of the particulars of this one, because there was some interesting facts in this case. Yes, those March arguments were kind of wild as the justices kind of went through tons of frankly bizarre scenarios to try to get at what the right test is for considering whether a work is protected by free speech or whether it infringes trademarks. And that's what's really been at the core of this case, right? So VIP Products makes a lot of parody dog toys, one of which is shaped like a whiskey bottle and has a label that kind of resembles Jack Daniels. But it's bad spaniels. Get it? (laughs) (laughs) I do. (laughs) And there's some references to poop on the label, which Jack Daniels has been like, this is diluting our brand because people think we're associated with it. And it's a wrongful use of our trademark. VIP has said it's protected, though, because it's parody. So there's a lot of debate around this case that has centered on the approach of, like I said, the test of whether it's to decide whether it's protected speech or trademark infringement. And there's two things you need to like really know about as we talk about this, which is one is the Rogers test, um, which is this longstanding test that gives First Amendment protections to works with other trademarks on them, as long as the work is considered artistically expressive and does not explicitly mislead consumers. But that's in contention with the Lanham Act, which is the federal trademark law that calls for infringement to be reviewed when there's a likelihood of confusion. Yeah, there's a there, there's a lot to untangle in this case and, and how the, the test and the act kind of go together. So uh, what did the court ultimately decide in this one on Thursday? So they reversed two key Ninth Circuit findings. One, the lower court had said the whole dilution of brand argument that Jack Daniels um, had failed because this was parody. So it fell into a non-commercial exception. Bluntly, Justice Kagan said, the use of a mark does not count as non-commercial just because it parodies or otherwise comments on another's product. And to be clear, VIP Products is making money off of this. Second, and this is the more interesting issue, the Ninth Circuit never got to looking at the likelihood of confusion issue with the Lanham Act because they had ruled that the parody toy was protected by the First Amendment. And the justices on Thursday said that was wrong to do. Now, they did not do away completely with the approach the Ninth Circuit took, which was to see first if it passed the threshold Rogers test. But they held only that when the accused has used a trademark as a trademark, the way VIP products is doing here, that kind of use falls within the heartland of trademark law and does not receive special First Amendment protection. So they completely skirted the Rogers question, which was like what a lot of trademark experts were really like looking at with this case. And Kagan noted that, you know, in most other contexts, Rogers is used where a trademark is used as some sort of like more expressive function. And I think the best that she, she listed like a couple of scenarios, but the one that really <laughs> resonated with me was that like think of like Barbie girl, that like song from like a couple decades ago, like oh, fantastic. No, it's fantastic. <laughs> Don't do this to <laughs> us, Natalie. That's all going to be stuck in our heads now. I know. I know. I'm sorry for the earworm. But but so, so that song is using Barbie trademark 
but not in a way that you would think it's coming from Mattel, which makes Barbie, right? Yeah, right. That that makes sense. So this wasn't in the case, though, with the VIP products toy. Um, you know, and it's not the case where someone else's trademark is basically being used again, albeit slightly modified as trademark for another product. Just Kagan said, quote, without deciding whether Rogers has merit in other contexts, we hold that it does not when an alleged infringer uses a trademark in the way the Lanham Act most cares about as a designation of source for the infringer's own goods. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, when you look at the dog toy and you look at the bottle of Jack Daniels, a reasonable person maybe could think that Jack Daniels wanted to create something like that. It's very similar. You know, it's not it's not a parody where they're, you know, a song about something or whatever. So I, I, I guess I see where the justices are coming from. Well, part of the trademark is actually the shape of the bottle. And Justice King goes into like a sizable section of the opinion talking about like whiskey bottle shapes and actually was like go look at your like liquor drawer and you'll take it out and you'll see it like looks like this shape of the toy and there's a whole discussion it's, it's really interesting actually well, it, justice kagan had to fire up the barbie girl song for this one she was like studying bottles of liquor i mean what is going on over there i know they, she had some fun with this one i think yeah um so there wasn't any dissents. You mentioned that it was a unanimous uh, opinion, but uh, there were some concurrences, right? That's right. Uh, so Justice Sotomayor wrote separately, basically to warn courts about giving too much weight to surveys given as evidence. Um, so like in a lot of these cases, and including this case, um, sometimes like one side or another will do a survey of consumers to see if they're likely to be confused by something uh, by a tr- on a trademark. And... Justice Sotomayor pointed out that evidence in this case, which suggested suggested that the survey itself might have been confusing. And she was basically like taking a moment to like tell lower court judges, look, take these kind of surveys with a grain of salt. Remember, they are only one part of figuring out the likelihood of confusion. Also, Justice Neil Gorsuch separately wrote a brief but pointed concurrence to underscore that court should handle the Rogers test with care. Um, You know, he noted that the court has not truly cleared up with its decision when the Rogers test should come in. And frankly, he kind of threw some shade that it's, quote, not obvious that Rogers is correct in all its particulars. (laughs) And he, you know, came very close, I think, to like saying like, he, he said that these were issues for another day and basically came very close to saying, like, maybe we should take this up again sometime later. Yeah, we see justices do that from time to time. They kind of send out the the signal of like, yeah. hey, I'm I'm interested in this. If somebody else wants to bring it up, maybe not this case. But um, that's very interesting, Natalie. Um, there was a little bit of other news um, unrelated to the opinions. There was some financial disclosures that were due this week and were turned in this week by most of the justices. Um, what what exactly happened this week? That's right. It was uh, financial disclosures for 2022 were due. Now, as you said, most of the justices did um, file them on time, although both Justice Thomas and Justice Alito secured extensions to their filings. Um, and I know... You know, obviously, many people were closely anticipating Justices Thomas's, given the scrutiny that has been put recently on his relationship with Republican donor Harlan Crow, who has reportedly provided the justice with lavish trips and gifts that have not 
or allegedly have not been properly cited in his financial forms. There's obviously debate over what needed to be and what didn't need to be, um, but it's all kind of become embroiled in the growing calls to have a formal ethics code for justices. Everybody was paying very close attention to see if Justice Thomas was, and I'm sure he will file his eventually. I mean, his extension was granted pretty quickly, and um, so I know that we will get to see those uh, one day, um, just not this week. But we saw a couple of other justices, and we saw a couple of interesting uh, disclosures. What um, any anything jump out to you, Natalie? Yeah, so most of the disclosures, you know, frankly, are like travel reimbursement for conferences and speeches or visiting professor and come, you know, kind of boring stuff, right? <laughs> um, but the, the a couple of the like line items that stood out to us uh, were that uh, Justice Kantanji Brown Jackson got a very nice floral arrangement from Oprah that was valued at like 1200 And I'm just like trying to like in my mind, guess the size of what this floral arrangement was. I'm usually good for like a $50 floral arrangement, so that I can't even imagine. That must fill a whole room. Right? Um, she also accepted a very nice gift from Condé Nast, which uh, had done a photo sh- shoot with her for Vogue, and I guess she got to keep the dress and jacket that she wore that were valued at like 6580 So, you know, Justice Jackson coming in with like her freshman year, getting some some like little nice nice things, but she she put it all up in her financial disclosure. Sounds sounds very nice. Yes. Yeah. Also, um something else that jumped out, I think, uh, was just Sotomayor reported income from book royalties that totaled nearly a hundred and fifty thousand um from Penguin Random House for uh, both her book Just Ask and another book Turning Pages. Now Just Ask, um, she also noted that she's received a 10K option fee for a potential video or television treatment and two th- a little over two thousand dollars for theater adaptation rights. So who knows? We might see her book kind of jump onto the small screen or the stage one day honestly that would be uh i i would probably go see a movie that was an adaptation of that i don't i don't know who would play justice sotomayor but (laughs) i would certainly be interested well that was it it was a it was a packed week uh we're chipping away at opinions there there was four that were handed down we got through two and uh we're certainly gonna gonna keep paying attention but that just about does it i think for us natalie right that's right hopefully i I don't think they've actually scheduled technically another opinion day but hopefully we'll be back next week with a few more thanks so much steven thank you natalie and thanks to our listeners for tuning in if you uh, love the show feel free to send us a 1200 dollars bouquet of flowers We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank our guests this week, Sam Hirsch, and our reporters, Danny Kess and Jess Koshtangle for contributing to this episode. Music for the show comes from Sunderbeats. For more information about all the iHeartCourt action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening.